Hello everyone and welcome to The Bunker. Alwyn Turner's Histories of Britain from the 1970s to the present day are a secret pleasure, I would say. Their fame spreads by word of mouth. You don't see Alwyn on the TV. He isn't a media don. He doesn't have big op heads in the serious press. Instead, people who love fine writing and original research treasure his books, which begin with a history of the 1970s and go through to the present day. We like them as much for not only the politics, which he is a master of, but the way he uses popular novels, popular television to throw light on our past. I'm delighted to say that he joins me in the studio now. Welcome to The Bunker. Thank you very much and hello. Hello. Your last volume is out in paperback, all in it together, England in the early 21st century. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you've got a clear period. It's a story of beginning and end. The millennium, Brexit. On the other, I'm left with a huge feeling of uncertainty about this country after reading it. Yeah, I mean, it, it stops just before Brexit, I think it's important to say. It, it, it ends with the re-election of David Cameron in 2015. I didn't think it was time. I mean, I, I, I pose as a historian. It didn't feel as if we're ready to look at Brexit. Too contemporary. Uh, uh, yeah. It, and, and even 2015 feels like it's it's current affairs. Well, really. I'm sorry, forgive me. Except, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just you know what's coming. Yes. Indeed. It's, it's, it's like a book stopping in August 1939. You can see it coming over the horizon. There's a dramatic irony to it. I'm assuming that you do know what's going to happen with this yeah. referendum that's been promised. But it does feel as if something as, as, as finishes around that period. I mean, it starts, it's the coincidence of the millennium and 9-11. There is a very definite start to this century of feels. And then something has changed. In, and, and I don't think we're out of the phase that we, we can then look at as history anymore. But that period does seem to me a fairly discreet period up to 2015, 2016, and then things change. And yeah, it's, 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 it's still uncertain, I think. But, but what I'm trying to do I, as, as much as anything is, is how did we get to that referendum result? What was the state of it the did. nation prior to that that made us vote in that way? And you start quite originally, I think, with two points. The first is the collapse in faith in institutions, hmm. beginning with religion. It's what often happens at the beginning of a, a century, the end of one century, the beginning of another, is, is there is a sense of confusion and, and, and the things are up in the air a bit and, and people feeling that they need to get some new version of faith. It, 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 it's happened in the last few centuries, but even more so this time because of the millennium. Although we are a post-religious society, it still feels as if th there was something there that we needed to adjust to. And it does feel to me as if it leads to that 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 loss of faith in institutions, as you say, religion well, is is damaged, politics is damaged, banking is damaged, journalism. Not, not 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 yeah, journalism very definitely. Not not that these were things that were necessarily held in very high regard before. If you ask people in opinion polls, journalists and politicians did not come out very well. But even so. We still voted for them. We still bought the newspapers. I mean, we're, the, and we still and we still put the money in the banks. And we indeed. still yes, we like to tell ourselves that we didn't. You know, we didn't trust any of them, but we did really. Yes. And then then there's a series of crises in in the early part of this century where everything seems to be damaged or almost everything. I mean, the monarchy survives. The armed forces, I think, survive despite the fact they're involved in two catastrophic wars. In reality, by normal standards, they lost. Yeah. And for any regime, when you lose a war, Putin yeah. must be thinking this now. And, and you're and, in real danger. And it's not something that we're used to. No. We're, I mean, we're you know the, the great cliche of British military history is we lose every battle apart from the last one. Well, in in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
Afghanistan, we seem to have lost the last one as well. So it's, it's I mean, that, that that's a bit iffy. But but our respect for the army remains, and the armed forces generally. I think that they still do retain faith. But virtually everything else seems to have been to have been damaged. Your concluding line, and and because it's a work of non-fiction, I'm not, I hope, spoiling it. Your concluding line, is it from Russell T. Davis, The Second Coming, talking to, because everything is now done in the name of the people, and you've got the web, you've got democracy of referendums on Scottish independence and on Brexit, you've got the feeling that everyone's out of touch. And your concluding line is a wonderful Russell T. Davis line, addressing the people, if you Mm -hmm. like, all of us. And it goes... Do you think you're ready for that that much power? You lot, you cheeky bastards. <laughs> and there, there is this feeling I, I got from reading your book, uh, to quote the, the colleague say, the old is dead, but the new cannot be born, that there is great uncertainty yeah, about, so. OK, yeah, all these institutions, religion, politics, parliament, banks, journalism, are in flux or in disgrace. What comes next? And I, I think that's that's the, the the real issue, which which is not resolved in this book. It's not resolved. It in, question mark. It's not resolved in life yet. You know, we haven't worked this out. And and a lot of that is, although inevitably, if you write about a period, you, you're focusing on the people who are there. You know, this is the time of Tony Blair and of David Cameron's yeah. premiership with Gordon Brown sandwich. These people seem important, but actually, I think there's something much much bigger happening, which is the internet. Which obviously we have that in the 1990s, but it's only this century where you feel that the internet has actually started to. Create create its own identity. The development of social media has changed everything and is only a first stage. We have no idea where this will go, but it does call into question all our concepts of representative democracy and therefore of representative institutions. How? It says everybody is of equal worth. It is a pure democracy, but we have no idea of what that means and of how that plays out in reality. But it means that we're no longer trusting of our representative in Westminster or of any of the power structures that existed that used to keep the country together, or not this country. The the entirety of society have always been built on institutions that have a continuity in time and have a legitimacy. And I think the internet undermines that. I'm entirely optimistic. I trust human beings will find a way to incorporate this and to develop it and to create something new. But what that is, I think we are are so early on in, in this period that it's very difficult to see. What it's doing at the moment is destroying things, but that doesn't mean to say it's not going to create. Can I give readers who are unfortunate enough not to have read you before an example of why I admire you so much? You look at the rise of this uncertainty and... Instead of just focusing on Westminster and elections, which are important, you don't mm-hmm. mind. So you look at the rise of the Stop the War movement, George Galloway, to explain what is going to happen to the left. I like that because I did it at the time. You then do something I completely missed, and I look back on my career and think I should have done. You, you, you look at the rise of UKIP, which is going to lead. So on one hand, you've got the far left leading to Corbyn and the collapse of the Labour Party in 2019. On the other hand, you look at the rise of Euroscepticism by starting with Robert Kilroy Silk, which I miss that. I completely missed that. I should have I should have said, hold on a second, what is this guy doing here and what does it mean? Can you explain Robert Kilroy Silk, UKIP, you know, 15 years ago, I thought these people are jokes, they don't matter. Stupid people like me thought that, just as I got attacked the whole time when I was writing about Stop the War and the alliance between Islamists and post-communists. I said, Nick, 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 they shouldn't be doing that. They mm-hmm. don't matter, Nick. 
no, no, no. I, you know, no, you should be focusing on the Tories. Why did they matter? I, I, yeah, I mean, some of it, I have the benefit of retrospect, obviously. You, the the when, privilege when, of the historian. Yeah. When, when you were writing What's Left, I can understand entirely why, why there were people saying, why are you bothering about these fringe people? Yeah. But, and clearly... Jeremy Corbyn would not have been such a strong presence in this book had I not been aware of what then happened in 2015 yeah. because he was an obscure backbench MP. But the seeds were there and and the seeds were there on the left I think with the Ken Livingston campaign to become London Mayor the first time round after it being kicked mm. out of the Labour Party for standing as an independent candidate and there was a, a, a coalition, an alliance that was built around his candidature because Ken Livingston was going to be very important he was the natural successor to Tony Benn as the leader of the left. It kind of fizzled out but that tradition was still around and it was building connections between different groups that were normally at each other's throats starting to find some some common causes they could unite around and then as you say on on the other side you have this weird little grouping of UKIP I mean these people who genuinely think you can start a new party and get anywhere at all in this country Mm. is clearly nonsense there is no possibility they will ever amount to anything at all and then they end up changing the, the entire history of the nation and Nigel Farage has a bigger impact than pretty much any politician who's been elected to Westminster in that period. And I, 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 some of that is because Farage is an extraordinary campaigner and resonates with people because I think he is one of the few politicians where people believe that he means what he says. And he clearly does. Whether he still does, whether he's been corrupted by the process in the way that politicians often are is another matter. But at the time, the idea that he would devote his life to campaigning for this silly little party that was on the fringes and meant nothing, and that he would throw himself into this hopeless cause, is clearly a manifestation of his belief. He genuinely, genuinely means it. Mm. At a time when we didn't think that many politicians did. They'd been doing too much media training. They all looked the same. We'd lost any sense of authenticity. And Farage clearly had it. Kilroy Silk is is kind of the joker in the UKIP pack where he, he tried to stage a coup within the party based on his 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 extraordinarily high profile as a media performer on yeah. TV. You have an interesting line about Kilroy Silk and George Galloway. Maybe they were just 20 years too early. And they are they are signs of the future. I think so. And maybe that future is not one that actually is going to make, amount to a great deal. Maybe maybe the moment will pass, but it still feels to me as if that polarisation, these very strong individual characters who don't really owe their allegiance to any party or to anything in particular, any movement. I mean, the reason that UKIP rejected Kilroy Silk was he didn't actually feel as if he was part of UKIP. He just Mm. felt as if he was Kilroy Silk. George Galloway is seen as being on the left, largely because of his position on the Middle East. Uh, and he's ex-Labour. Like Kilroy yeah. Silk, ex-Labour. Bo- both of them ex-Labour. Like Oswald Mosley, ex-Labour. Indeed, yeah. There was a time when it was the Liberal Party. Back in 100 years ago, it was the Liberal Party that produced these weird one-offs, but uh, it's, it's the Labour Party has done so. But Galloway is, is, is not conventional left by modern standards at all. I mean, he, he remains a Catholic who sometimes poses as a quasi-Muslim and has a moral agenda that simply does not fit the modern left at all. Again, he feels as if he's in there for himself, and he he ends up destroying respect, which he co-creates. I thought and wrote at the time that what was happening was that the socialist movement, which in the late 19th and 20th centuries could inspire people, could move millions of people, could create revolutions, was dying by the 1980s. And all these people, like Galloway from Labour or Trotskyist Marxist groups, Seamus Mill and Socialist Workers Party, Andrew Murray, all these people at some level 
knew that and saw the wave of the future, the revolutionary or indeed ultra-reactionary power. But nevertheless, the anti-establishment power at the time was radical Islam and tried to ride the tiger. And Galloway, Galloway fits into that. He could not go around arguing for all power to the Soviets or workers' power, mm-hmm. but he could exploit religious fervour. As Ken Livingstone did while he was mayor of London. Indeed. I mean, his accommodation to what was happening in, in, in Tower Hamlets, for example, was iffy one might think. But there has been that connection of where do you get this new power base? I think you're entirely right. It used to be you would appeal to the working class, but we're we're now a bit suspicious of whether the working class still exists. Haven't been to university and anyway. You know, they, they've not been to university. They, and they, they might, yeah, they, they're not really part of polite society. Yeah. And, and so maybe we can co-opt another group. White working class goes from salt of the earth to scum of the earth in three generations, as uh, yeah. the Gallen Clark said. Very and, true. And, 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 and ends up with a very strong support for UKIP. Yeah. Because they feel as if they've been rejected by everybody else. What about on the Eurosceptic right? What energy is the Tory right, UKIP, what are they tapping into? English nationalism? I think Tony Blair's premiership changes the country in two ways, neither of which I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm entirely sure he would approve of. But one of them is, is the devolution, which was intended to buy off Scottish nationalism above all else. Welsh nationalism was not so important, but Scot- the Scots need to be bought off and then it goes wrong and it accelerates the separation. And the other thing that changes under Blair is the rise of immigration. It's before the Eastern European accession. There is already a massive rise in net immigration and indeed just in immigration in straight terms. The graph rises from 97 onwards. And those two things change the country because from uh, you asking about where, where the UKIP kind of energy comes from, some of it is because the English start to feel that things are being given to the Scots and to the Welsh. Indeed, yeah. And we are being left out. And there is a resentment of... The level of immigration and the spread of immigration, I think this is what changes it in, in, in the Blair years more than anything else. It's not simply the numbers, it is the geographical spread. There are places in the country that experienced virtually no immigration at all in the decades preceding. They'd seen it on TV, they'd read about it, but suddenly this is happening in their, in, in the small towns in the west of the country. Because in every East service Anglia. industry wants. Yeah. And, 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 and local hotel, local yeah. restaurants. And be, because we are now based on service industries rather than on manufacturing. Previously, immigration had been focused on manufacturing areas and on on, on the big cities and towns of, of the West Midlands and the North. Now, suddenly, this is East Anglia. This is Somerset. Everywhere there is there is a Polish supermarket springing up on the, the high street. And I think there are, there's two things about that. One, I, I, I think it's impressive that, we, that there is not an attack on those Individuals, I think there isn't we, a violent we, neo-fascist movement. No, I, and, and and there was a possibility of that with the, the the BNP, the British National Party, did do remarkably well up to the end of the first decade of this century. I mean, they they, they had a good mm-hmm. first ten years, and they got up to nearly a million votes in the two thousand and nine European elections. But then that dissipates. The support for the BNP is transformed into support for UKIP, which is... A, it's, it's not some, a neo-fascist party. No, no, Whatever it's, 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 it. it's, it's something that UKIP resent being, you know, people saying no, that this is the case, but it clearly is the case. This is what happened. The mm. BNP voters did move over, and yes, it's a much, much safer place for them to be. Ultimately, I think there was 
was enough anger in the country that it was going to erupt in one way or another. And it seems to me that actually a referendum on British membership of the European Union was a safer place for it to be than many other options that were available, which would have included a very hardcore anti-immigration, anti-immigrant kind of position within politics. It is possible that this was quite a useful way of defusing tension. The other once again, I, I, I'm going to stop praising you because I, you know, I ought to be a bit Jeremy Paxman and give you a hard time, <laughs> you bastards. But I mean, I've read so many books. I'm slogged through books, just slogged through books by political scientists on the huge division between graduates who are liberal and working class people who leave school at 18 mm-hmm. and how this is a fundamental cleavage who left yeah. schools in our society. And you do it magnificently by comparing the treatment of Roy Chubby Brown and Jimmy Carr. Can you explain Indeed, that? Indeed. It was, it was not intended. Uh, Roy Chubby Brown wasn't on my original cast list when I, saw, I yeah. conceived of this book. He elbowed his way in somewhat rudely in the way that he does because it just struck me as... as can, you explain really to can you explain Roy to our Chubby... largely graduate listeners who have no idea who he is, who Roy Chubby Brown was? Roy, Roy Chubby Brown is a comedian of the old school. He is as close to Bernard Manning in the modern era as, as, as we will have. He comes from Middlesbrough. He is resolutely working class and resolutely unwoke, unpolitically correct, whatever cliche we're using at, at any particular time. He goes through the whole period from the 1980s onwards and his jokes are about sex. They are to some extent racist. They're certainly sexist. They may or may not be homophobic, depending on one's definitions, but he, he transgresses. The reason he I, 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 I felt he needed to be included was I kept on reading news stories about Jimmy Carr or Frankie Boyle has said this outrageous thing and how transgressive they are as comedians and I thought yes but they're still on television yeah. and they still have their own shows on television that they present Chubby Brown has never been allowed on television and, well, banned, with, and, and councils were banned yes, from and, and, and local he, yes, and he, 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 he was he was cancelled before we, we, we had the concept of cancel culture at all he was already being cancelled by local authorities who, who run the kind of medium size venues, a lot of them are owned by local authorities, and they don't like Chubby Brown being on their their, their turf. Even in his hometown of Middlesbrough, he was banned from playing at, at, at council venues, despite which he was at his peak the most popular live comedian in the country, the biggest live draw. His his DVDs, and before that, his videos sold in vast quantities. So and, why, and he so represents a working class audience who... Yeah, are being it, shut it, out. It, it is, are, it who, is, who are being shut out who feel, of feel culture, they've been excluded of society, yeah. excluded and, from mainstream society. They're, yeah. they're, they're not uh, around the time of the referendum. The 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 great cliche was the the, the left behind, and I've no, never been happy about that. Because, oh, really? Because it turns out they're the majority. Yeah. They're the ones who actually won the <laughs> referendum. So I mean, who are we to say we, we've left them behind? Uh, no, uh, we're recording. We're recording this in Islington. I can assure <laughs> listeners that we are the left behind. But that's very much his constituency. If you look at a video of. Chubby Brown performing and and, and it so so why, goes around the audience. So, you, they're, they're so, the voters who, so can you see Brexit coming in the fact that Roy Chubby Brown is banned, but Jimmy Carr and Frankie Boyle aren't? I think so. I, I, I because because Boyle and Carr are university educated, they know how to play the game. Yeah, and in terms of the referendum itself, what David Cameron and most politicians counted on was. We are the respectable people. If we say that this is how things ought to be, then people will follow. But actually, 
people had lost any sense of faith in that. That's why the faith in the institutions matters, is because they no longer had the authority to say, this is what we believe, which happened in 1975 with the referendum, when Harold Wilson, having carefully prevaricated on both sides, I'm taking an even hand on, and then finally says, I'm coming out in favour of us remaining in the European communities. That meant something then, mm. because he was the prime minister and we listened. And, and the people who were opposed to it were all these nutters like Enoch Powell and Tony Benn and Sinn Féin. Well, it was this, the same nutters this time in, in 2016, but they actually win because, because no we don't faith. have any faith yes, in I, the... I, I always remember meeting Lord Faulkner, who was his Labour peer, very involved in the Labour Party legal advisor, just saying to me afterwards, this is the end of Labour, because what we have survived on since the early 20th century is the working class saying to us, these are really, really difficult decisions. What do you guys think? And we would say, and they'd say, okay, that's fine with us. And now they can't do that anymore. I think that's, I think that's entirely it. And I, I think some of that, as I say, is the, is, is the, the manifestation of the, the, the internet and the power that it gives us as individuals. In the great cliche of the, of, uh, the radio phone-in programme, well, my, my opinion is as important as anyone else's. And there is, there is an element of that, I think. But going back to the Chubby Brown, I, I, I think you're right. The, the point I'm trying to make in it is is not an original point. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not claiming any great originality of thought in terms of the, the divisions between the, the graduate and the non-graduate world and the fact that this has grown because the number of people going to university has grown. That is, we, we are now at a kind of almost equal split between those who have university education and those who do not. It's not an original thought, but it is something that does play out in just a... A, a, a massively wide variety of, of, of possibilities. And, and, and comedy seemed to me one way of, of illustrating this. Yes. Rather can, than it being theoretical. Can I ask you, I feel a bit bad asking this question in a way, because this is not a book about party politics. And in some ways, it shows how the party politics, for all the emphasis that journalists put on it, is kind of not really as important as, as we like mm. to think. But where does this leave the Labour Party without... Because it doesn't seem... It connects to graduates, but there, there aren't enough left-wing graduates to win an election. It doesn't seem to have a kind of visceral base. It is representing of people who say, yeah, okay, I'm just going to vote Labour, you know? Come what may. The Labour Party has... I mean, it, it's just an enormous uphill future it, it, it is it is really difficult from the from the low base of 2019 which is worse than it was in 1983 with michael foot and largely it's worse because you haven't got scotland yeah and and, and once once you've knocked out 50 seats in scotland well you've got to make that up in england somewhere mm. but even in 2005 tony blair on his third election victory up against michael howard yeah in, in the midst of the, the 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 debacle of iraq when it was really looking bad and yet in that election the Conservative Party outpolled Labour in England. Mm. And that was that was a landslide victory for the Labour Party because the votes stacked up in the right way. But yeah. but still, England is not a Labour country. It never has been. I mean, and I think I think that's the reality that the Labour yeah. Party has to face. And to some extent, which which Tony Blair did. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm critical of Tony Blair, but he did he did understand the situation. I think that England is a naturally conservative country. And in order to win at it from the left, you have to make some accommodation to that and to allow for that. And when, when Blair said that we are patriotic, people did believe him. Hmm. 
I mean, this is back in the 1990s, before before this book. By, by the time you've got Iraq and, and Afghanistan going wrong, it becomes much more difficult to believe that he's patriotic because he seems to be doing the country no good whatsoever. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Liberals in 1906, mm-hmm. anti-conservative governments only, only used to happen when the Celtic nations combined with, the, with bits of London and the North to just break the massive... Yeah, southern block of Tory seat. Indeed, and 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 I I I don't know. I'm I'm as I pose as a historian, not as a, not as a commentator on yeah, current yeah. affairs. But it, it feels to me that the possibility of Labour winning the next election outright is minimal. I can see them leading a minority government, which will then be dependent on the SNP. But then that was the position in 2015 that was so so skillfully exploited by the Tory campaign that said that you're going to end up with Ed Miliband in Alex Salmon's pocket. That was sufficient to, de- to destroy the Labour Party's chances in 2015 when actually it was winnable. Now it's much more difficult. If you want to know how we got to this awful situation, all in it together is out in paperback. Now, before we go, before we go, though, it is our traditional commercial break where I have to remind you that The Bunker is broadcast, is out, released, new episodes, whatever you want to call it, uh, every day except Friday. There's, oh, God, what do we do now? Or what, what the fuck is this mess in? With Ian Dunt, Alex Andreo, and loads of other stars. There is the essential listening, I would say... Uh, of Arthur Snell's Doomsday Watch podcast on the global crisis. There is also, and uh, sorry if I'm uh, demanding your money, we have a Patreon, Patreon page, I can never pronounce it right. Give us a bit of money, you get all kinds of goodies, free episodes, a dinner date with the presenter or member of production staff of your choice. I've seen them both go for the production staff and it helps us, it helps us keep the show on the road. If you like this programme, please give us a nice rating on your Spotify Apple or Android podcast. Write us a nice review. I think I've done with all the special pleading now. All in it together, out in hardback and coming out in paperback in June. All that remains is for me to say thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. Producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofonievich and Alex Rees. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.